Chapter Forty Eight of the Tenant of Wellfell Hall. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ana Sofia Simão de Portugal. The Tenant of Wellfell Hall by Anne Bronte. Chapter Forty Eight. Five or six days after this, Mr. Lawrence paid us the honor of a call and when he and I were alone together, which I contrived as soon as possible by bringing him out to look at my cornstacks, he showed me another letter from his sister. This one he was quite willing to submit to my longing gaze. He thought, I suppose, it would do me good. The only answer it gave to my message was this. Mr. Markham is at liberty to make such revelations concerning me as he thought was necessary. He will know that I should wish but little to be said on the subject. I hope he is well, but tell him he must not think of me. I can give you a few extracts from the rest of the letter, for I was permitted to keep this also, perhaps as an antidote to all pernicious hopes and fancies. He is decidedly better but very low from the depressing effects of his severe illness and the strict regimen he is obliged to observe, so opposite to all his previous habits. It is deplorable to see how completely his past life has generated his once noble constitution and vitiated the whole system of his organization. But the doctor says he may now be considered out of danger if he will only continue to observe the necessary restrictions. Some stimulating cordials he must have, but they should be judiciously diluted and sparingly used. And I find it very difficult to keep him to this. At first, his extreme dread of death rendered the task an easy one, but in proportion as he feels his acute suffering abating, and sees the danger receding, the more intractable he becomes. Now. Also, his appetite for food is beginning to return, and here, too, his long habits of self-indulgence are greatly against him. I watch and restrain him as well as I can, and often get bitterly abused for my rigid severity, and sometimes he contrives to elude my vigilance, and sometimes acts in opposition to my will. But he is now so completely reconciled to my attendance in general, that he is never satisfied when I am not by his side. I am obliged to be a little stiff with him sometimes, or he would make a complete slave of me. And I know it would be unpardonable weakness to give up all other interests for him. I have servants to overlook, and my little Arthur to attend to, and my own health too, all of which would be entirely neglected were I to satisfy his exorbitant demands. I do not generally sit up at night, for I think the nurse who has made it her business is better qualified for such undertakings than I am. But still, an unbroken night's rest is what I but seldom enjoy, and never can venture to reckon upon, for my patient makes no scruple of calling me up at an hour when his wants or his fancies require my presence. But he is manifestly afraid of my displeasure. And if at one time he tries my patience by his unreasonable exactions and fretful complaints and reproaches, 
At another he depresses me by his abject submission and deprecatory self-abasement when he fears he has gone too far. But all this I can readily pardon. I know it is chiefly the result of his unfeebly framed and disordered nerves. What annoys me the most is his occasional attempts at affectionate fondness that I can neither credit nor return. Not that I hate him. His sufferings and my own laborious care have given him some claim to my regard, to my affection even, if he would only be quiet and sincere, and content to let things remain as they are. But the more he tries to conciliate me, the more I shrink from him and from the future. Alan, what do you mean to do when I get well? He asked this morning. Will you run away again? It entirely depends upon your own conduct. Oh, I'll be very good. But if I find it necessary to leave you, Arthur, I shall not run away. You know I have your own promise that I may go whenever I please and take my son with me. Oh, but you shall have no cause. And then followed the variety of professions which I rather coldly checked. Will you not forgive me, then? said he. Yes, I have forgiven you, but I know you cannot love me as you once did, and I should very sorry if you were to, for I could not pretend to return it. So let us drop the subject, and never occur to it again. By what I have done for you, you may judge of what I will do. If it be not incompatible with the higher duty I owe to my son, Ire because he never forfeited his claims, and because I hope to do more good to him than I can ever do to you. And if you wish me to feel kindly towards you, it is deeds, not words, which must purchase my affection and esteem. His sole reply to this was a slight grimace and a scarcely perceptible shrug. Ayla's unhappy man. Words with him are so much cheaper than deeds. It was as if I had said, Pounds, not pence, must buy the article you want. And then he sighed with a querulous, self-commiserating sigh, as if in pure regret that he, the loved and courted of so many worshippers, should be now abandoned to the mercy of a harsh, exacting, cold-hearted woman like that, and even glad of what kindness she chose to bestow. It's a pity, isn't it? said I, and whether I rightly divined his musings or not, the observation chimed in with his thoughts, for he answered, It can be helped, with a rueful smile at my penetration. I have seen Esther Igrave twice. She is a charming creature, but her blithe spirit is almost broken, and her sweet temper almost spoiled by the still unremitting persecutions of her mother in behalf of a rejected suitor, not violent, but wearisome, and unremitting like a continual dropping. The unnatural parents seems determined to make her daughter's life a burden if she will not yield to her desires. Mama does all she can, said she, 
to make me feel myself a burden and encumbrance to the family, a most ungrateful, selfish, and undutiful daughter that ever was born. And Walter, too, is as stern and cold and hardy as if he hated me outright. I believe I should have yelled at once if I had known, from the beginning, how much resistance would have cost me. But now, for very obstinacy's sake, I will stand out. A bad motive for a good resolve, I answered. But, however, I know you have better motives, really, for your perseverance. And I consulted to keep them still in view. Trust me, I will. I threatened Mamma sometimes that I'll run away and disgrace the family by earning my own livelihood if she torments me any more. And then that frightens her a little. But I will do it in good earnest if they don't mind. Be quiet and patient a while, said I, and better times will come. Poor girl, I wish somebody that was worthy to possess her would come and take her away. Don't you, Frederick? If the perusal of this letter filled me with dismay for Ellen's future life and mine, there was one great source of consolation. It was now in my power to clear her name from every foul aspersion. The Millwards and the Wilsons should see with their own eyes the bright sun bursting from the cloud, and they should be scorched and dazzled by its beams. And my own friends, too, should see it. They, whose suspicions have been such gall and wormhood to my soul. To effect this, I have only to drop the seed into the ground, and it would soon become a stately, branching herb. A few words to my mother and sister, I knew, would suffice to spread news throughout the old neighborhood, without any further exertion on my part. Rose was delighted and as soon as I had told her all I thought proper, which was all I affected to know, she flew with alacrity to put on her bonnet and shawl, and hastened to carry the glad tidings to the Millwards and Wilsons. Glad tidings, I suspect, to none but herself and Mary Millward, that steady, sensible girl, whose sterling worth had been so quickly perceived and duly valued by the supposed Mrs. Graham, in spite of her plain outside and who, on her part, had been better able to see and appreciate that lady's true character and qualities than the brightest genius among them. As I may never have occasion to mention her again, I may as well tell you here that she was at this time privately engaged to Richard Wilson, a secret, I believe, to everyone but themselves. That worst student was now at Cambridge, where his most Exemplary conduct and his diligent perseverance in the pursuit of learning carried him safely through, and eventually brought him with hard-earned honors and an untarnished reputation to the close of his collegiate career. In due time he became Mr. Milliard's first and only curate, for that gentleman's declining years forced him at last to acknowledge that the duties of extensive parish were a little too much for those vaunted energies which he was not wont to boast over his younger and less active brethren of the cloth. This was what the patient, faithful lovers had privately planned and quietly waited for years ago, and in due time they were united, to the astonishment of the little world they lived in, that had long since declared them both born 
to single blessedness. Affirming it impossible that the pale, returning bookworm should ever summon courage to seek a wife, or be able to obtain one if he did, and equally impossible that the plain-looking, plain-dealing, unattractive, unconciliating Miss Millward should ever find a husband. They still continued to live at Vicarage, the lady dividing her time between her father, her husband, and their poor parishioners, and subsequently a rising family. And now that the Reverend Michael Millward has been gathered to his father, full of years and honours, the Reverend Richard Wilson has succeeded him to the vicarage of Lindenhope, greatly to the satisfaction of its inhabitants, who had long since tried and fully proved his merits and those of his excellence and well-loved partner. If you are interested in the after-fate of that lady's sister, I can only tell you, what perhaps we have heard from another quarter, that some twelve or thirteen years ago she relieved the happy couple of her presence by marrying a wealthy tradesman of L, and I don't envy him his bargain. I fear she leads him a rather uncomfortable life, though, happily, he is too dull to perceive the extent of his misfortune. I have little enough to do with her myself. We have not met for many years. But, I am well assured, she has not yet forgotten or forgiven either her former lover, or the lady whose superior qualities first opened his eyes to the folly of his boyish attachment. As for Richard Wilson's sister, she, having been wholly unable to recapture Mr. Lawrence, or obtain any partner rich and elegant enough to suit her ideas of what the husband of Jane Wilson ought to be, is yet in single blessedness. Shortly after the death of her mother, she withdrew the light of her presence for a bright farm, Finding it impossible any longer to endure the rough manners and unsophisticated habits of her honest brother Robert and his worthy wife, or the idea of being identified with such vulgar people in the eyes of the world, and took lodgings in the county town where she lived, and still lives, I suppose, in a kind of close-fisted, cold, uncomfortable gentility, doing no good to others and but little to herself spending her days in fancy work and scandal, referring frequently to her brother the vicar and her sister the vicar's lady, but never to her brother the farmer and her sister the farmer's wife, seeing as much company as she can without too much expense, but loving no one and beloved by none, a cold-hearted, supercilious, keenly, insidiously censorious old maid. End of chapter 48